Welcome to Joey Ito's Conversations. Today's conversation is with Cade Crockford, the director of the Technology for Liberty program at ACLU of Massachusetts. Hey, Cade. Hey. Welcome to uh, Facebook Live and YouTube. Maybe you can start out by uh, introducing yourself and explaining a little bit what you do at the ACLU. Sure. Um, well, my name is Cade Crockford, and I run something called the Technology for Liberty program at the ACLU here in Boston for the Massachusetts affiliate. Um, and the project basically aims to do two things. One is to ensure that uh, civil rights and civil liberties protections keep pace with new technology. Mm -hmm. So that's obviously a broad mandate. And then the second is um, something we've started doing more recently, which is to actually use digital technologies to um, try to achieve some of our other civil rights and civil liberties goals. And that um, specifically is... Uh, reducing the number of people who are under carceral control in the United States and Massachusetts. So that um, those are like ankle risk, GPS prisons, jails, oh, okay. you know, probation, parole, any form of carceral control. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And so then, it's not necessarily te technology for that, but just more broadly. Exactly. Yeah. And then reducing racial disparities in the mm -hmm. system. So when I say using technology towards those ends, really what I mean is talking about data. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. thinking about, you know, where we can get, the, the most recent and useful data mm -hmm. and how we can present that data to the public, to journalists, to policymakers mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, in ways that can inform the debate and, you know, ideally move mm -hmm. policy in the mm -hmm. direction we want it to go. Actually, maybe that's a, a sort of a basic question that I think everybody has heard of the ACLU and sort of has images of what the ACLU does and Hears in movies people saying I'm a card carrying member of the ACLU, but but what, what's the broader mandate of the the ACLU? Great question. So we are the nation's oldest civil rights and civil liberties organization. Um, we've been around almost 100 years, and 2020 will be our 100 year anniversary. And we have uh, offices in all 50 states. We call ourselves Freedom's Law Firm. So obviously, you know, most people know us as a legal organization. Mm -hmm. um, so we definitely do a lot of litigation, mm -hmm. um, specifically most, you know, typically around First Amendment rights, mm -hmm. Fourth Amendment rights, expansion of freedom of speech, freedom and of religion. One of the more contentious things that you've done is you've protected the freedom of speech of people that other people might think, it, why are you doing that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So... You know, there's a joke actually at the ACLU that's like, it, it goes something like this. If you support, you know, 80% of what the ACLU does, you're a staff member. If you support 60%, you're a board member. Um, <laughs> if you support 50%, you're a donor. You yeah, know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Because, yeah, you know, sometimes we defend ugly people for sure. Yeah, yeah. But I should say that that's not only in the speech context. Like right. a, a few years ago, we had a client um, here in Massachusetts. Yeah. Uh, we worked to basically protect your cell site location information. So that's information that your mm -hmm. cell phone is mm -hmm. sending to your cell phone company to locate you so that your cell phone can actually make calls. Yeah. Um, cell phone companies obviously collect this information and store a whole lot of it. So mm -hmm. law enforcement is mm -hmm. naturally interested in obtaining this data right, because right. it shows where people have been over a long period of time. Um, and so we had this client, his name was Augustine, and he was mm -hmm. accused of killing his girlfriend. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, police obtained his cell site location data, mm -hmm. two mm -hmm. weeks of it without a warrant. Right. And and we challenged that and we won. What's, so. that, what's that gadget <laughs> called again that the police use? Well, that's is a separate it? thing. That's, that's a, a stingray. Ray. Okay. That's yeah, a stingray. Yeah. That's, so that's, what's, what's the difference? So cell site location information yeah. is data that the cell, com the cell phone company produces. Right. Um, in order, you know, every time we 
turn on our phone or make a call or mm -hmm. look at Twitter or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, the reason it works is because our cell phone company has triangulated our location mm -hmm. um, through the closest, three closest cell phone towers. Right. That's how this signal, the strongest yeah. signal is served to our phone. Mm -hmm. um, and so they collect as a business purpose, they mm -hmm. collect these records mm -hmm. um, in part, you know, for good reason, because it helps them determine where to place the next cell phone tower, right? right? right. If there's an area where there's heavy traffic and mm -hmm. it seems like um, there isn't enough coverage, you know, they need to know those mm -hmm. kinds of things. But they keep them. They keep those detailed records on every mm -hmm. customer. Mm -hmm. um, and cell phone companies keep those records for you know differing amounts of time. But mm -hmm. you know, generally about a year or eighteen months. Mm -hmm. And yeah, they show. I mean, really, especially in a city where there are a lot of cell phone towers, right. pretty right. detailed mm -hmm. records of, mm -hmm. of your movements. So. Mm -hmm. Those are records that are produced by the cell phone see, company. I see, I see. Stingrays are a device that law enforcement can simply carry around with them mm -hmm. that enables them to skip the process of going to the cell phone company mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. directly track your phone. Right, right. Yeah. And that there was also a, a case against Stingray, right? Some, I think there was some... Was it a hacker? I can't remember who it was. There was a well, there have been a number of legal challenges to mm -hmm. law enforcement's use of stingrays without warrants. Mm -hmm. um, and in most cases, they've succeeded. So there was a case in uh, federal court in New York last mm -hmm. year, I believe, mm -hmm. that um, you know someone challenged the D Drug Enforcement Administration's mm -hmm. use of a stingray mm -hmm. to locate him, um, not just in an apartment building in New York City, but outside his door. The, the device led uh, the oh, police really? to literally this guy's apartment. Right. Right, um, right, inside, right. A, you know, an apartment building with hundreds of apartments. So they're very right, powerful right, right, technologies. Right. Um, and, you know, as a result of that power and some of the decisions that the Supreme mm -hmm. Court has made in mm -hmm. recent years, the court held that, yeah, you know, cops should get a warrant to, I see. to use and, that And device. this is sort of the space that you, you yeah. on. Yeah, definitely. You know, um, it's our view at the ACLU that the, you know, there are some technologies where it's really challenging actually to try to figure out what the balance should be between liberty and speech rights or between mm -hmm. liberty and, um, you know, the government's need to investigate crime. Right. Um, but generally speaking, there's a pretty clear, bright line answer, which is get a warrant. It's often mm -hmm. not that complicated, mm -hmm. actually. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of the work that we do is simply to try to encourage legislators mm -hmm. in, at the state level and mm -hmm. in Congress, and then also courts mm -hmm. to, you know, uphold that standard mm -hmm. for 20, 21st century technologies. Yeah. And, and do you have an ACLU in every state? Is that how it works? We do. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the ACLU is, a, I, I love working for the ACLU because we, you know, I have colleagues who are doing work on gay rights, on mm -hmm. trans rights, on abortion rights, mm -hmm. um, on religious discrimination. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you know, we're involved in the litigation against the Muslim ban, yeah, um, yeah. in immigration rights. Um, we've had some success in Massachusetts, mm -hmm. um, at the Supreme Judicial Court recently, um, challenging, for example, local law enforcement's ability to detain undocumented mm -hmm. people at mm -hmm. the request of ICE. Um, and then I do all this privacy and technology work mm -hmm. and, and that's true all across the country. There are in every single state and in Puerto Rico, actually, mm -hmm. we have mm -hmm. offices mm -hmm. and we have, um, a national office in New York city mm -hmm. and, and we have folks in DC who are lobbying. Mm -hmm. And so we basically do three general types of work, um, legal work. Mm -hmm. So in the courts, mm -hmm. you know, suing the government oftentimes, mm -hmm. um, lobbying in state capitals and in Congress mm -hmm. and, um, community organizing and political education mm -hmm. and things like that. Were you guys involved in, um, the first wave of, uh, immigration bans that the executive order, cause I, cause Massachusetts had a, I can't remember exactly what, 
whatever. Massachusetts ended up with a ruling that allowed. That's right. Right. Yeah, that was my colleague Matt Siegel, our legal director, um, mm-hmm. working with uh, some other immigration attorneys. Yep, we we were involved right away, and you know. It's those are the moments actually where it's I feel especially privileged to do this work because, mm-hmm. you know, my colleagues are brilliant and so dedicated. Mm-hmm. I mean, people were in the office working on that brief for like, you know, 18 hour mm-hmm. days mm-hmm. for three days in a row over the weekend. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And what was neat about that was. Um, I don't know if you saw that Lufthansa was the only airline that would mm-hmm. carry people to Boston um, because the other American and other airlines um, wouldn't make a call. That um, and uh, we got our students back uh, Good. on Lufthansa, and it was this sort of series of brave people, including mm-hmm. the people at the gate, including mm-hmm. the general counsel at Lufthansa, including mm-hmm. you guys. And uh, um, you know, it's not fair to just look out for your own, but it was it was a it was a pretty amazing set of events. Yeah, totally. Um, Matt Siegel, our legal director who litigated that um, case, he frequently says when he talks about that weekend that, you know, he when he talks to his kids about what happened, um, he invokes uh, Mr. Rogers and his story about the helpers, right? That like mm-hmm. in every situation there's going to be, when, when there's a crisis, mm-hmm. there are always going to be people who are, who will help. And I think that, you know, mm-hmm. like you said, at mm-hmm. every stage, whether it was like people at the gate to mm-hmm. the lawyers to like, mm-hmm. obviously the people themselves who were brave enough to try to come back into the country, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. to the thousands of protesters who were at airports here mm-hmm. in Boston and mm-hmm. all across the country, mm-hmm. a lot of people stepped up. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess it must be, it's, it's, it's like, it's, the current environment's probably terrible, but it's also, I'm on the board of the New York Times, so it's this kind of weird thing when something terrible happens, but then your sales go up. I mean, probably the ACLU is getting more positive support yeah. right now than when everything's kind of hunky-dory. Well, it's never really hunky-dory, but it may look that way, right? Right. Well, that's a really interesting problem for us, actually, um, because certainly our membership ebbs and flows in terms of, you're right, basically who's president. I mean... Mm-hmm. Um, when George Bush was elected, that was prior to my time at the ACLU, but certainly they saw a membership spike, um, mm-hmm. when the Patriot Act was passed and, you know, after 9-11, mm-hmm. um, when the nation was thrust immediately into this like really scary moment when I think a lot of people were fearing the mm-hmm. rise of, you know, xenophobia and mm-hmm. racism mm-hmm. and, um, you know, extreme nationalism and, mm-hmm. and policies that go along with those terrible ideologies. Um, and the same thing. But the inverse happened when Obama was elected. You know, yeah, a lot yeah. of people thought, oh, we can chill now. Like, yeah. you know, the constitutional law professor in right. chief is in charge. But, but um, I've heard you argue that it, it wasn't a great period for us, right? Because well, it in felt a lot of ways, good, but yeah. there were still things going on that, that you, you, you were still busy, right? We were really busy during that time. Yeah. And, you know, I think this is one of the tricky things about American politics, Mm -hmm. um, the sort of red team, blue team aspect of um, the way that people view themselves as political actors Mm -hmm. uh, in this country. It's not really conducive to um, critical thinking, Mm -hmm. I guess. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, unfortunately, during the Obama years, um, I think what was most dangerous about what President Obama did Mm -hmm. is that he uh, basically reified a lot of the worst excesses of the Bush administration in the mm-hmm. national security and surveillance and, and war context. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and in areas where he did better than Bush, like for mm-hmm. example, torture, mm-hmm. he didn't, he didn't fix the problem. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. the people who were responsible for 
um, creating the torture program and implementing it, mm-hmm. they were never held to account for those crimes. I mean, mm-hmm. those are war crimes. Those are international right. war crimes. Right. And they were never held account to account for any of those crimes. You know, mm-hmm. some of the people who wrote those legal memos are law professors, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, right. Who, you know, get honors and get paid tons of money to talk about the law. Mm-hmm. Um, so Obama didn't fix that. And mm-hmm. when you let, when you allow that kind of illegality to mm-hmm. occur without any account, kind of accountability, you're just guaranteeing that it's going to happen again. Right, um, right. And so, you know, in that area, in terms of NSA surveillance and the drone mm-hmm. uh, war that mm-hmm. he obviously expanded, mm-hmm. um, there were definitely areas, and of course with immigration, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. Barack Obama deported more people than any prior president mm-hmm. in the United States. So there were certainly lots of areas where we were really concerned about mm-hmm. um, his policies and, and, and frankly, more than anything, the fact that the first black president, constitutional law professor, mm-hmm. was putting his um, stamp of approval on mm-hmm. a lot of the worst excesses of the war on terror. Mm-hmm. And, and you were talking about sort of the different, um, you know, initiatives that, 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 that we have that sounds like, you know, war on terror, war on drugs. Um, and, uh, you know, we're right now at, at the Media Lab working a lot on um, uh, the criminal justice, looking, one of the specific areas is risk scores. And um, um, and Julia Engwin wrote this great paper on, uh, at ProPublica on, um, who's a director's fellow with you now, mm-hmm. um, on sort of machine bias and risk scores. But then there are other arguments that say, well, even with the bias, you're still making the system more efficient, you're getting people out of jails, and that, um, uh, you know, th- that it's headed in the right direction. Um, do you have a view on, on sort of this? Let's not, because I think broadly, we have a bipartisan sort of agreement that mass incarceration is a problem that needs mm-hmm. to be dealt with, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's people throwing technology at it. And I don't know what your view is on that. Well, my view is uh, nuanced, and I actually I think that we may be asking the wrong question, which is mm-hmm. to say that technology is not often the answer to uh, a policy or legal problem, mm-hmm. right? So um, something like 50% of people who are in federal custody are there because of a drug charge. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a significantly lower number in the states, which is where most people are incarcerated in mm-hmm. the United States. Um, but it's still significant. And, you know, most people who are locked up or at least, you know, a good percentage are mm-hmm. there because they have committed some kind of nonviolent crime, often mm-hmm. a crime of poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, when we think about how to deal with this crisis, which mm-hmm. is absolutely a crisis mm-hmm. um, of incarceration in the United States, I think it's not necessarily the right idea to say, well, okay, we if we, if we only come up with a with a more fair or, um, you know, uh, techno- technologically induced, um, you know, neutral or sort of tech washed system mm-hmm. of, um, producing the incarceration system, right, right, it will, right. that, that's the answer. And mm-hmm. I don't think that that's really the answer. I think we're barking up the wrong tree effectively yeah, that, yeah. um, we should be looking to, divestment from mm-hmm. um, police, prisons, jails, um, mm-hmm. courts, mm-hmm. and investment in what people actually need to thrive, yeah. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, food, housing, mm-hmm. healthcare, mm-hmm. jobs, um, you know, mental health treatment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I know that's sort of a dodge because it's not exactly answering the question about, yeah. Yeah. about risk assessments, but mm-hmm. it's actually what I really believe. I mean, I think we're yeah. sort of asking the wrong question. Yeah. No, I, th- I think that's right. And I think one of the problems 
especially when the system's big, is that everyone focuses on that piece that they're in charge of rather right. than looking at the whole system. And um, I think in a weird way, the opiates problem um, is kind of an interesting problem because it's pretty clear that people, that they're fairly normal people are getting sucked into the opiates problem, which takes you down a criminal path at the end. But that the problem is much more upstream than just um, figuring out who the bad guys are. And um, I think that we have a lot of smaller communities now trying to tackle the opiates problem. And, you know, it's about, you know, marketing of, of, of pharmaceuticals. It's about support systems. It's about, like, completely nothing to do with the criminal system. And I think that it's it's kind of a neat problem. Neat problem is not, it's not a neat problem, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting problem because I think a lot of communities are aware that, that they need to look at the whole system and not just um, figure out how to put bad, bad, bad people in jail. Well, right. And, you know, there's a huge amount of frustration in black America because, mm-hmm. um, you know, of course, during the crack epidemic, mm-hmm. there was no uh, <laughs> there, was, yeah. there was no thinking about this problem as if right. it's like, you know, socioeconomic yeah. or is yeah. rooted in, you know, history or mm-hmm. um, anything that didn't squarely have to do with like black criminality. Um, and of course now, you know, that it's uh, frankly a lot of white upper middle class suburban, um, people who are falling, you know, into the disease of substance use disorders. Um, we have a vastly different um, way of talking about the problem at least, but I, I think it's important to emphasize that we're really only just talking about the problem differently. Um, you know, we hear people say, even I've even seen headlines that are like Jeff Sessions wants to bring back the war on drugs. Mm-hmm. The war on drugs has never left. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, even here in Massachusetts, we have um, Attorney General Maura Healy, who's mm-hmm. like very progressive, going mm-hmm. after the big banks, you know, student loan um, company companies that are violating mm-hmm. students' rights, going after you know Exxon mm-hmm. and the oil companies for lying about climate change, and yet. Um, she, her policies, mm-hmm. you know, despite what she says, um, about how, you know, addiction is a disease and we can't solve this problem mm-hmm. through the criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. Nothing's really changed on mm-hmm. the ground mm-hmm. in terms of, um, who's, you know, people getting arrested for mm-hmm. having a disease, for mm-hmm. having an illness, mm-hmm. people being processed through jails and courts mm-hmm. instead of, um, through treatment facilities. Mm-hmm. So you know, the rhetoric is different, mm-hmm. um, but we're not actually doing anything very different, yeah. which is really unfortunate. That's it's really unfortunate. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, um, and, and so uh, did you read uh, Michelle Alexander's uh, A New Jim Crow? Yeah. And, um, and I think the, the, um, the, the really interesting th- thing about the, the book, and every, everyone should read it, is how, you know, sort of through the different waves of racism, we're now at a place where, you can not, you can, you can say all the things that are seem politically correct, mm-hmm. but actually you're doing all the things that are continue to reinforce um, racial bias. And I think, you know, one of the, one of the interesting things as we talked about risk scores and, you know, the intent, and there are a lot of great foundations funding these risk scores, um, and they continue to be biased. But, but the, the, the interesting thing that somebody brought up was the, the mandatory sentencing guidelines for mm-hmm. judges, I think was originally the intention was there were biased judges. So by creating some way to limit uh, the discretion of the judges that you would somehow make the system more fair. Mm-hmm. But then you introduce laws that where the guidelines for punishment for crack are higher than cocaine. And mm-hmm. then you've suddenly 
eliminated the ability for the judge to be more fair. Mm-hmm. And now the prosecutor who, uh, and Adam Foss, who's also director's fellow, talks about this, who mm-hmm. really wasn't, that wasn't really their role so much in the past, now is sort of the place where they sort of decide what charges they're going to throw at the yeah, person. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then that's now the, 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 the pivot point. But, it, but it's interesting because, well, maybe I, I'll, I'll ask you because you, you, you may have a different view. Do you think that this sort of minimum, that the sentencing guidelines, do you think that was originally intended to be a fair thing? Or do you think that people sort of knew that it would be used in what turned out to be a, a, end up being a, a tool for bias against? You know, I don't know that people in t- had an intent to lock up more black and brown people mm-hmm. um, than white people, which is the effect of mandatory minimum sentencing yeah. laws. But um, certainly, the, you know, they were not maximum um, <laughs> sentencing laws. They were minimums, right? right? right, right. So, I mean, the, the, <laughs> yeah, yeah. right. So the, the, the goal, the legislative intent was clearly to um, subject people to an extreme form of punishment mm-hmm. in the sense of a minimum sentence, right? right Judges, right. and in that sense, it's taking the power away from a judge to you know, have mercy or mm-hmm, express, mm-hmm. um, you know, forgiveness or whatever. That's a, that's a, good, that's a good point. It's minimum guidelines. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. If they were maximum, it would be quite different, but right, they're right. not, they're minimums. Right, right. Um, and you know, here in Massachusetts, our number one legislative priority in my office is to end all drug mandatory minimums, um, mm-hmm. in the state of Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. That's really critical because, you know, have you ever seen law and order? I don't watch it all. Well, whatever, but you know about it. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. okay. So in Law & Order, you know, there's like a court scene in every episode. Right. This is fiction. This is not how the system works at all. We don't have trials, really. I mean, 95% of uh, cases, Mm -hmm. criminal cases in in Massachusetts do not go to trial. Mm -hmm. They are um, educated Mm -hmm. through a plea agreement. Mm -hmm. And mandatory minimum sentences, I, th- I think a lot of people don't understand how this, this system actually functions and the role of prosecutors like Adam mm-hmm. talks about is so critical here mm-hmm. because um, a prosecutor is, is effectively acting as like the judge and the, and the jury as well as the prosecutor right, right. in these cases because armed with the mandatory minimum, yeah. you know, say you're arrested, Joey, um, and the amount of weight that you have yeah. is uh, subject to some kind of mandatory minimum. Yeah. I'm the prosecutor. I come to you and your lawyer and I say, you know, there's a mandatory of three years attached to this offense. So if you risk going to trial and you're going to be found guilty, by the way, mm-hmm. um, if you risk going to trial, you're going to serve the mandatory three years. Unquestionably, the judge has no power. If mm-hmm. I charge you on that mandatory, mm-hmm. he has no power. Or she has no power to give you any lesser sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm offering you now, though, mm-hmm. 18 months. Mm-hmm. You accept it every time. Mm-hmm. I mean, people always will accept that. Right. No lawyer is going to advise their client to take that case to trial. Mm-hmm. And so mandatory minimums have the impact not only I of, um, you know, taking uh, discretion away from judges mm-hmm. and making it impossible for them to say, come on, you know, this person clearly has a problem with addiction. They've got a couple kids at home. Mm-hmm. I really don't want to send them to jail for three years. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it also, it also, effectively mm-hmm. means people don't get their due process rights mm-hmm. because prosecutors are saying it's and, three years or 18 and, months. And so when you say you're fighting it, what do you, what do you specifically, what do you do? Well, there's uh, legislation um, that we support at the Massachusetts state legislature that would eradicate mm-hmm. uh, mandatory minimums for drug offenses. And mm-hmm. so we're trying to get that legislation mm-hmm. passed. Mm-hmm. We also um, 
you know, again, we come at these issues from many different angles. So my colleagues in the legal department filed a lawsuit here in Massachusetts a number of years ago mm-hmm. um, to try to sort of uh, wedge the door open mm-hmm. in the sense of um, asking the Supreme Judicial Court mm-hmm. to order that um, judges do have some discretion under the current statute mm-hmm. to make sentencing determinations, even in cases where mandatories are charged. We lost mm-hmm. that case, unfortunately. So now it really is up to the legislature. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and when you when you say you're supporting it, do you support it with with evidence or arguments or how, is, is that just legal support? Yeah. So, I mean, that's one area where um, some of the data work is really important. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, again, we've been talking a lot about um, drug policy, which is a central part of what I care about in this work. Um, mm-hmm. But in terms of the technology, mm-hmm. uh, we are increasingly investing in both people and um, technological resources that mm-hmm. can help us as an organization internally um, understand and process large mm-hmm. amounts of data and mm-hmm. make sense of them mm-hmm. for, like I said, you know, the public policymakers yeah. and journalists. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, uh, we actually had a fellow, a technology fellow who uh, came to us through Ford and um, Mozilla's Open oh, right, Tech right. Fellows Program, who uh, was able to look at basically statewide drug charging data mm-hmm. and tell us some pretty astonishing things that frankly, uh, the state of Massachusetts did not even know about how mandatory minimums, minimums are functioning in right. terms of racial disparities and mm-hmm. things like that. So That's, have you ever talked to Julia England before? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Cause that was one of the things that she recently presented was just how there were so many great arguments for a lot of things, but when she sort of created this, data um suddenly people were sort of given permission to state things as facts when uh before they even though they had studies didn't have the same weight yeah i think that's really important but i have to tell you that i'm really frustrated by the um failure you know data is not convincing to policymakers if there is a popular mythology that contradicts the data mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that they think most people believe. And, you know, the, the um, corollary to this in, in another area of public mm-hmm. policy that's obviously really important is climate. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, for a long time, there was data showing that, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, carbon in the atmosphere that was caused by human beings was warming the planet and warming mm-hmm, the ocean mm-hmm, and that this mm-hmm. was like causing storms and it was mm-hmm. going to be a real problem for yeah, civilizations. Right. And despite all of that evidence, mm-hmm. you know, the mythology um, that was, as we now know, um, propagated by oil companies and politicians who mm-hmm. are paid by them mm-hmm. um, said something quite different. And, you know, people have their own incentives wanting to drive a big mm-hmm. gas guzzling car or whatever. Mm-hmm. So the myth- mythology for a long time overcame the science, right, you know, right. people didn't care about the science. And that's sort of the position that we're in now mm-hmm. with respect to criminal justice policy mm-hmm. and data. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll give you one example. The state of Massachusetts, mm-hmm. um, the Department of Public Health put out a report last year that found that people who are released from incarceration mm-hmm. are 56 times more likely to die of an overdose okay. than people who are not incarcerated, who are addicted to heroin. Mm-hmm or another opiate, Mm -hmm. 56 more times likely to die. So in other words, I mean, the state is telling us, Mm -hmm. and this is the state's own data, that jail kills people, Mm -hmm. that jailing substance users Mm -hmm. kills them. Mm -hmm. Um, 
none of that facts or evidence matters right, right, in terms right, of public right. policy making. I mean, if we were a society that was driven by evidence mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and really cared about evidence-based criminal justice mm-hmm, policy, mm-hmm. we would never arrest someone again right, for using right, drugs right, right. after looking at that study. I mean, mm-hmm. it would be clear as day that that is a death sentence in many yeah, cases yeah, for yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yet the mythology, which holds that, you know, it's good, get them off the street, they can dry out, you know, have mm-hmm. a good place to rest, have mm-hmm. a nice meal, you know, maybe they're homeless, it'll be good for them. Right. Mythology somehow carries the day, even though we have yep. evidence yep. to prove that that's not only wrong, it's deadly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and it seems to be partially in that case, I mean, a caring problem, right? I, I, mean, I think it's, and it gets back to your, your point earlier about the opiates problem now becoming a white person problem. Right. Um, and because I think one of the, actually the previous uh, Facebook live I did was with Martha Minow and you know, we were talking about sort of the, you know, three reasons you have the criminal justice system. You know, one is for punishment, but the others are deterrence and, um, um, and remediation and sort of we focus, I think, politically so much more on the punishment part I and mean, maybe a little bit on the deterrence part, but then helping people is really not we talk about it as sort of a mythology, but we don't really do it. And it's, it's interesting. I just got back from Europe, but in Europe, there's a lot more of, you know, should, how do we bring these people back into society? And it's, a, um, it, it's interesting how, you know, just kind of imagine where that comes from. And, and, you know, we're in Massachusetts. I mean, some of it feels somewhat, somewhat puritanical. You know? mm-hmm. And I think one of the interesting questions is, you know, um, is that, is this sort of something that the political layer that we can change? Um, because there's, I mean, and, and, and this gets to sort of Adam Foss's shtick about getting the prosecutors to have compassion, because that's really where, as you pointed out, where you have the, the ability right now to uh, uh, change the course. But mm-hmm. how do you teach compassion to people who have power, right? Right. Well, I think we need to elect different prosecutors. I mean, that's, yeah. you know, and... So, so prosecutors are elected? Oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't yeah. realize that. Yeah, exactly. So it, it's it's funny that you say that, actually, because the ACLU nationally and here yeah. in Boston right. um, is uh, running a campaign. We're going to launch ours pretty soon. Mm-hmm. Um, that is effectively a public education campaign around the role that district attorneys play in the okay. system because, um, you know, it's it's what you just said mm-hmm. that you didn't know that they're elected. Right. Most people don't right, actually. Right. And they play this incredibly powerful role, yeah, not yeah. just in the courts, mm-hmm. but also in the legislature. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. The, the main opposition to ending mandatory minimum sentencing mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. prosecutors right, at right. the state house. Um, when I go to the state house to lobby in favor of expansive new privacy protections mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. Massachusetts residents, mm-hmm. um, you know, cell phone tracking warrant mm-hmm. protections mm-hmm. and things like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Who is it that is on the other side? Prosecutors. Mm-hmm. Every time. Mm-hmm. Um, almost everything we do at the state house. Yeah. Uh, right now, prosecutors in Massachusetts are trying to expand the wiretap statute. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're on the other side of that fight. They mm-hmm. have an incredible amount of power on mm-hmm. Beacon Hill and at, at state capitals all throughout mm-hmm. the country. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah. And and so but but the path to becoming a prosecutor start out as an like assistant DA and other things. And and one of the things that, that Adam points out is basically you're you're scored by how many cases you win. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's really the only metric you have. And uh and I think one of the things that he's been working on is how do you track the people that have come through your office and see how they've turned out because that's the feedback that you would need to actually measure whether you're doing good or not. Right. right. And I think that that data isn't really available. I mean, I think that that could be something that also 
Um, is that something that a third party could help with? Potentially. I mean, another area that would be, I think, a lot easier to measure yeah. um, that would tell us a lot about the role of prosecutors and how well they're doing is numbers that pertain to, you know, who they're charging, who they're not charging, right, and right. for what types of offenses, right? right? Um, so, you know, again, you know, prosecutors are politicians, and mm -hmm. they, like many politicians in Massachusetts, a progressive mm -hmm. state and other progressive places throughout the country, are saying things like, you know, we can't arrest our way out of the crisis right, of right, substance right. use. Um, but if you go and sit in a district court, mm -hmm. you know, anywhere in Massachusetts, you'll watch assistant district attorneys prosecuting people for drug possession right, right. Um, and getting comprehensive data. You know, that's one of the things that this project I'm working on aims right. to do is to get really comprehensive data on what the system looks like. Mm -hmm. um, again, I find it astonishing, you know, like the, the amount of scrutiny that programs like welfare and health and human services mm -hmm. and Medicare are subjected to mm -hmm. um, in terms of, you know, detailed, rigorous, empirical mm -hmm. analysis of every second, of every cent and dollar spent right. and where it went. Right. Um, there's nothing remotely like that in the criminal justice system. In fact, the people who run it often don't know what's happening inside of it. Yeah. I mean, it's unconscionable. And right, right. and instead of um, giving people food or health care, like these programs that are subjected to so much scrutiny do, yeah. these programs are de depriving people of their liberty. I mean, you know, we should pay more attention to, mm -hmm. to pr anything that locks someone in a cage right. um, than probably anything else. I mean, that's yeah. a really severe form yeah. of state power. Yeah, yeah. And it, and it seems like, I mean, getting back to the risk score, uh, stuff as we start to look at different um, uh, jurisdictions that the data is just terrible. The, yes. the data entry is bad. Yes. The data collection is bad. And so, so it's kind of garbage in, garbage, garbage out. The algorithms don't seem great either, but the data seems terrible. And so, you know, I think what's, what's, what's scary is then you can say, okay, well, let's be more data driven and let's be more sort of analytical about who we're putting in prison. So one, the data is crap. And so it's, it's Julius shows that a lot of it's just a little bit better than the coin toss yeah. um, and sometimes worse, but then even if you make the data good, then, you know, one of the, I think, other arguments is then you, you end up with these really weird correlation things where if you're just born in a certain place, if you have friends mm -hmm. who are criminals, you're going to have the system against you. And so is that fair? You know, and it's, uh, um, and I think, again, I think you, we need to get back to some first principles because right. if we're just replacing little units inside of a system, um, making them more efficient doesn't make it work. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, there is a risk certainly, um, that we collect a lot of really accurate data about who's inside the system and how they're, you know, moving through it and where they come from and, mm -hmm. you know, where they're going and that that information is used, um, towards, you know, ends that are inappropriate or violate people's rights. No mm -hmm. question. I mean, I can just think right now that, you know, say the state of Massachusetts or another state actually does get a hold of its criminal justice data and mm -hmm. really tr truly starts to understand, you know, what's going on in the system. Mm -hmm. Maybe they decide that, like you said, you know, if you're born in a certain neighborhood and your skin is a certain color and your mm. parents make a certain amount of money, you know, the likelihood that you will end up incarcerated is, you know, so, so many times higher mm -hmm. and that therefore there's some kind of, um, you know, repressive intervention right. in your life when you're right. a young person. Right. Um, 
but that doesn't have to be the the reaction, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, even if we had all of that data, which mm-hmm. I think you know ultimately is probably a good thing to mm-hmm. understand how these systems are working, mm-hmm. we could have a totally different type of inter- intervention, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what that's why I think when we think about risk assessments, we're really mm-hmm. keep, we're just throwing more you know good money after bad mm-hmm. when in the the solution to many of these problems is not mm-hmm. penal, you know. So, so do you do the other non legal capacity building and, uh, you know, community stuff. Is that something that the ACLU does? Yeah, definitely. So, um, here in Cambridge, actually, we are working to pass a local ordinance Mm -hmm. that would require the city council approve, uh, new surveillance technology acquisitions before law enforcement Mm -hmm. can use them. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's a project we're doing here in the city of Boston. I'm involved in sort of like voter education project related to the Boston city council and mayoral elections. Mm-hmm. Um, so we sent some questionnaires to the, to all the candidates around issues related to policing and immigration and surveillance and things like that. Mm-hmm. And um, hope to get those back next week and do a lot of uh, intensive voter education before the November 7th election. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah, so those are the two sort of community related projects that I'm working on right now, but mm-hmm. certainly, um, yes, a lot of organizing. And, and what, what can you give us an example of surveillance that the city's trying to do that you think is not appropriate? Well, so in Cambridge, you know, the Cambridge police department and the city of Cambridge are, I think uniquely, uh, enlightened mm-hmm. <laughs> in so far as, you know, how police departments and city governments go. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's for a number of reasons. You know, it's a relatively affluent community. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there are a lot of really well educated, thoughtful people here who are professionals and have time to go to city council meetings and yeah, be yeah. engaged in local politics. Um, it's not true everywhere else. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the less engagement there is, uh, in local politics, the mm-hmm. more likely it is that there are going to be abuses. So one example in the city of Boston mm-hmm. where, um, Boston, you know, in, in Cambridge city council meetings are at like five thirty or mm-hmm. five o'clock. So, mm-hmm. you know, after you can go after work mm-hmm. in the city of Boston, city council meetings are often in the middle of the day, mm-hmm. which effectively excludes you know, the vast majority of the working population of the city from participating in city government. So it's almost like, you know, anti-democratic by design. Um, It's also a strong mayor system. You know, Mm -hmm. the council doesn't have very much power. Mm -hmm. And what results is um, that the police department can do some, some things that are pretty unfortunate. So for example, uh, over the summer, I got a phone call from a guy who lives in the uh, Heath Street projects in Jamaica Plain, Mm -hmm. who told me, Kate, there's a drone flying around uh, near my house right now. And I see a couple of Boston police officers flying it. Um, What, you know, do you know if the BPD has drones? I've never Mm -hmm. seen them do anything like Mm -hmm. this. And I said, no, I hadn't heard that. Please take some photographs and send them to me. I'd like to look into it. So a couple days later, I went back to the office and filed a public records request to the BPD, um, asking them for information about Mm -hmm. their drone program. Turns out, yes, they had three drones. Mm -hmm. Um, The city council president had no idea. You know, the Boston Globe asked her, were you aware that the BPD was, um, you know, using drones? No, no idea. the Boston police department denied having ever used them hmm. despite the fact that we had photographs mm-hmm. of their officers using them. Um, so yeah, it's that kind practicing. of, yeah, exactly. <laughs> just practicing on low income black people actually, which is what happened. Right. Yeah. Um, so 
Yeah, you know, that's the kind of abusive mm-hmm. uh, secret deployment of surveillance technology mm-hmm. that we're trying to avoid. And, mm-hmm. and so these types of ordinances, one of them passed in Seattle not mm-hmm. long ago. Santa Clara, County, Santa Clara, California has mm-hmm. an ordinance like this. They don't, you know, prevent law mm-hmm. enforcement from obtaining any kind of technology. It's really more just about um, having a public conversation at the outset mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. way too often. People will say to me, well, you know, the horse is out of the barn because mm-hmm. the cops have already spent a hundred thousand dollars buying XYZ thing and, you know, they've already started using it mm-hmm. and, um, it becomes much more difficult to mm-hmm. have any kind of democratic oversight or, mm-hmm. um, you know, meaningful transparency, um, once the horse is out of the barn. So these ordinances aim to involve the public and elected mm-hmm. officials mm-hmm. at the outset. Well, we should, um, talk about at some point, now that you're a director's fellow, some of the stuff that we're working on, because we, we are trying to work with specific counties uh, or or specific uh, jurisdictions in deploying technologies that might help. So, for instance, we're you know we're thinking maybe we can make a open risk score system where because right now they're held by these private companies right. that where you can't subpoena the algorithm. And, you know, or maybe we shouldn't have risk scores. And I feel like specifically with the risk score thing, it's kind of interesting because the companies are still small enough that they're not like the Diebolds. Right. And so they're not big enough yet to be a substantial financial lobby. Mm-hmm. And you sort of want to get at it before they become that big. And also, I think, you know, you know, there's some great things that AI can do, but there's some things that it shouldn't be used for. And I mean, like, you know, um, Ron Reves at MIT works on this a lot, but he doesn't, he doesn't think, and I agree with him, that we should be doing electronic voting. It's just not the right, right thing to do. And, mm-hmm. and I think it could be that there are a bunch of places in the criminal justice system that we shouldn't be using computers. And I think that conversation is important. I think MIT, I think Harvard Law School, I think we all play a role in mm-hmm. kind of being able to do some of the basic research and maybe in addition to just poking out what's going on, produce some um, examples here that we can deploy that we can show as alternatives to mm-hmm. the way that, um, and, 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 you know, and it's weird because I come from uh, sort of an entrepreneur background, but I think so many things right now, they're like, oh, let's just have an entrepreneur do it. And, and it becomes a commercial and, and, you know, enterprise when I think a lot more of this stuff can be done um, in the open and doesn't necessarily need a company or sometimes even technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but it would, it, it'd be fun to sort of talk to you about the specific problems. Cause I think we have a lot of technology and we have a lot of lawyers now, but finding really interesting problems to attack would be really great. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think one area that needs a lot of work is just opening government information. Um, another, you know, sort of paradigm that I'm always working with in, in the work that I do at the ACLU is trying to, um, flip, um, the a really unfortunate situation that we found ourselves in, you know, I guess 16 years after 9-11 now, where increasingly the government and corporations know so much about us mm-hmm. and we know so very little about what the government and those corporations are doing, right. um, both with our personal information and then even, you know, more broadly with public money or whatever. Um, and so that's some of the, you know, some of the data work that I'm doing aims to try to address that inequity Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, in a free society. It should really be the opposite, right? Right, right. um, The government knows nothing about you or very little until it has some cause to Mm -hmm. investigate you. (laughs) Um, And you know almost everything about it, right? (laughs) Yeah. I I, I worked on the privacy bill in Japan because I was concerned that the government was collecting too much data on us and they were trying to pass a national ID. And, 
And it was interesting because like the beginning, it was about transparency of government to protect the privacy of individuals. And we got a bunch of energy around it. And then they just flipped it in the end to where the government would still retain the ability to do whatever they wanted, but they created a regulation that regulated people. And they had the ministries sort of pass this sort of, you know, very heavy handed privacy bill at the people and then they stayed secret and it was, and that's what's kind of interesting about all these laws in the lawmaking process same in the united states where you pass a law and then at the end they just kind of like yeah say not right like wayne's yeah. or something you know? yeah. <laughs> and uh and that's that's what was super frustrating because a, a lot of this i feel and this is what the aclu is great at is you have to have tenacity because oh, yeah. like you get the bill going and by the time it's kind of run through its course, all the protesters are gone. Right. And you're sitting there fighting against a bunch of people who are still kind of chugging along, trying to make, right. destroy the thing. And, and, uh, um, and, 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 and like this, you know, minimum sentencing guideline, I mean, it may have started out with good intentions, but sort of in the end, it sort of weighs in, in the wrong way. So, um, so I, I think, you know, one of the things that, hopefully we can do with with you coming and working with us is to sort of build uh, a longer term play in mm-hmm. the space because right now you know you know I, I, I guess i'm on 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 the record so i can't say but too much about it but you know the trump is good for business right now mm-hmm. for people who are trying to gather resistance and i think the trick is to build up a lot of energy to put this force of trying to create transparency of those in power and privacy with those without it, but to make it so that it sticks so that when you do get a liberal, uh, government that it doesn't just sort of the energy doesn't just fizzle out of it. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I actually have, you know, a slightly scarier take on that, which is that, um, it seems like things are quite bad right now with respect to, you know, just having a competent government, Mm -hmm. um, in the first instance, but then also having a government that respects people's rights and, you know, um, respects people regardless of their, you know, race or nationality or Mm -hmm. religion or gender or, you know, gender orientation, whatever, Mm -hmm. sexuality. Um, Naomi Klein has written some really powerful stuff. She, her, her latest book talks about what is going to happen when there's a real true shock under Mm -hmm. the the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. And I think we also, you know, I'm committed as the ACLU has been for a hundred years to Mm -hmm. doing that long-term work, you know, regardless of who's in power. So Mm -hmm. certainly um, it could very well be that, you know, this doesn't blow up in our faces even worse than it already has. And, you know, someone who's more competent and thoughtful comes into power. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, we need to do the hard work, like you've said, of, uh, Mm -hmm continuing to engage people and, and, um, pay close attention to policy, even mm-hmm. if the person who's in charge is someone we like mm-hmm. more. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think what's key about that is maintaining a healthy distrust of government. Actually. Yeah. I think that's yeah. what people fail to do when right. their right. team is the, one, is yeah. the one who's running the show. Yeah. Um, but I'm also concerned about what's going to happen if, you know, I think for example, about the Las Vegas shooting, if yeah. that guy had been Muslim, I mean, yeah. Maybe we really would. People on Fox News may actually be talking about concentration camps for Muslims right, right, right now. Right, you know, right, like right. things could get precipitously worse yeah, yeah. Um, very quickly. Yeah. And I think that we really have to be aware of that likelihood, mm-hmm. too. On, on that optimistic Yeah, that's super note. hopeful. <laughs> I think we're out of time. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Thank you, Kate. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, but, um, but I think, I think it's just... Um, Having just to wrap up, I think though, it, in, in any case, it's a really uh, good time to sort of rally students and other people to, um, be diligent, um, be 
thinking for themselves and questioning mm-hmm. authority. So. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Me too. Thank you for what you do. Yeah. Thanks. thanks.